0: very active in their country as well, but we should have an agreement on energy security, energy reliability, energy rates that include an agreement on critical minerals being shared as part of a collective uh, supply chain between our countries.
1: Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands.
2: Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with the Canadian-American Business Council, and I'm joined by the ever fabulous Christopher Sands of the Woodrow Wilson Center. Hey, Chris, how you doing?
3: I'm doing great, Scotty. I'm I'm feeling fabulous, but uh, missing out on Boise.
2: Missing out on Boise, Boise, Idaho, my friends. Uh, the Pacific Northwest economic region, known as Penwer to its great fans and admirers, had its summer meeting in Boise, Idaho, and I was able to go. Unfortunately, Professor Sands was not. Um, but it was so- your own
3: private Idaho. Private Idaho.
2: That's right. (laughs) Idaho, just for me. I've never actually been there, so it was really fun. Um, And I had the great fortune to moderate a a discussion among three friends of ours, Chris, and and we thought we'd bring it to you and to our listeners. So so we kicked off uh, the Penwer Conference uh, in Boise with a discussion with former U.S. ambassadors to Canada, David Wilkins and David Jacobson. Uh, and Canadian ambassador to the U.S. and former premier of Manitoba, Gary Dewar. And all three of these distinguished gentlemen, uh, I think, are on the Wilson Center Advisory Board as well as the Canadian American Business Council Advisory Board. They have quite interesting and distinct careers from each other. They have... Uh, divergent points of view that uh, on Canada-U.S. relations that I think came out. But, but anyway, I had fun moderating a conversation. And uh, Chris, how about if we listen into it and then we'll come back at the end and see what you thought?
3: Fantastic. I'm looking forward to it. When they talk, I listen.
2: <laughs> there we go. Here we go. Let's tune in. Good morning, y'all. Thank you, Senator Winder. Thank you. We told you we'd come to Boise. You invited us. Good morning, Ambassador Grossman. Thank you for your hospitality. Thank you for your leadership on behalf of the Canada-US relationship. There's a reason that the four of us, none of whom are from the Pacific Northwest, we don't count Manitoba as Pacific Northwest really, Gary, but there's a reason we're here and there's a reason we come every year. And uh, I'm not blowing smoke or making this up. Uh, We have such enormous respect for the work of the Pacific Northwest Economic Region and it brings us back uh, every time we're invited, really. Um, and Matt Morrison, and you and your team do a phenomenal job at convening um, and uh, really showing up, not just with uh, gatherings, but with serious policy ideas and recommendations and all of that. So congratulations to PENWAR and to the leadership here. And thank you for having us. Okay, I don't know how this worked out that the three ambassadors sat in exactly the order that I'd like to ask you questions, but good job. Uh, We have a little less than an hour, and I think we're gonna incorporate your questions uh, today, but it doesn't matter because I have tons. And um, I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about the world and then about Canada-US, a little bit about politics, because we love politics, and a little bit about Canada-US relations, if that's okay, ambassadors. Sounds good. All right. So uh, I think everybody knows from your portal and your packets, but we have uh, Ambassador David Jacobson here from Chicago. He was President Obama's ambassador. He's in the leadership of the Bank of Montreal, BMO now. So welcome, Ambassador Jacobson. We have Ambassador Gary Dewar, who used to be a premier, you might remember, and was Canada's ambassador to the United States and uh, is affiliated with a law firm called Denton still, I think. We used to be colleagues there before I escaped, I mean, before I graduated, I mean. I worked there too. That's right. You did before we did, actually, before it was cool. And we have Ambassador David Wilkins from South Carolina, used to be Speaker of the House, and he's with a law firm that competes with Gary's law firm, Nelson Mullins, and uh, I don't want to say who won, but because you're our session sponsor, I think you win. So thank you, Ambassador Wilkins. Everybody in Canada is still trying to figure out what a bold peanut is, thanks to your tenure up there. Okay, so I think it makes sense to start with some kind of ripped from the headlines, what's happening in the world today. There was just a NATO summit, NATO might have been waning before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, right? And NATO is suddenly incredibly vital. Um, Ambassador Jacobson, you've been pretty vocal about the importance of NATO and Canada and the U.S. role in it. Maybe share your thoughts in case everybody isn't completely up to speed on on, on how you're feeling about um, the Canada-U.S. collaboration in the context of really a generational war uh, in Europe
1: well you know scotty as you said if you had asked about nato five years ago uh i think an awful lot of people would have said "You know, kind of a tired organization uh that is not the case now if you believe in the rule of law if you believe in democracy nato works and whatever you may think about some other things that president obama i'm sorry <laughs> still stuck in the past (laughs) president biden uh may have done I, i think it's fair to say that he really does has done a good job of uniting the west uh around nato um they just had this meeting there were a lot of headlines from the meeting uh probably the two most prominent were the continued support of the war uh on behalf of ukraine uh and the admission of of sweden Uh, to go along with Finland as new countries in NATO. Uh, So NATO is growing, NATO is strong. Um, One of the things they agreed to, and this doesn't get as much attention as it probably should, was there were a whole series of agreements on the interoperability of equipment. Uh, And, and, you know, uh, I was with a military guy not too long ago who was explaining to me that just because they 155 millimeter artillery shells. Doesn't mean they all work with everybody's uh, housers. So they did that. Um, but uh, one of the things they talked about, and I think this is what you were referring to, Scotty, is, you know, NATO's a club. And I belong to some clubs and I enjoy them and I get benefit out of them. And every month I get a bill and I pay my dues. Um, and in NATO, the 31 countries have to pay their dues. Um, And the commitment was that everyone would spend 2% of their GDP on NATO. Uh, The United States spends about 3.5%. About two thirds of every dollar that is spent by NATO is spent by the United States. Um, And Canada spends about 1.3%. Um, and the prime minister made a comment a while ago, which I did comment on about the fact that, well, Canada may not get to 2%. Um, and the reason that I think this is a problem, um, is not just because of the money, although that's an issue, but because the people in the United States and maybe a lot of people in this room, um, I kind of get tired of the fact that we're doing more than our share and some other people aren't doing their share and i I, i've always been a believer in the fact that you need to in the bilateral relationship between the united states and canada you need to deal with the biggest issues and if you deal with the biggest issues the smaller issues the irritants between our two countries just kind of take care of themselves Um, and I think at the moment, maybe the biggest issue, certainly one of the biggest global issues is this 2% thing. So I hope um, that Canada and some several other of the uh, NATO countries step forward, do their part, uh, and it will take some of the heat off of the uh, government authorities in the United States who have to keep defending Uh, a very high level of spending by us when some others aren't doing their share. Ambassador
2: Wilkins.
4: Last Wednesday's editorial, some of you may have seen this in the Wall Street Journal, the headlines was just a footnote on what David just said, Canada is a military free rider in NATO, and it describes Canada's feeble commitment, word it used to, to NATO, Talked about it ought to be sitting at the children's table and perhaps be replaced in the G7 by Poland that spends almost 4%. That's obviously not the kind of headlines that Canada wants. Um, I I, I agree with David, you you want to be a player in the world, you play on an international level, uh, that gives you the credibility to get things done and the little things usually take care of itself. Uh, I got to see firsthand Canada's commitment in afghanistan in kandahar when i visited the canadian troops when i was ambassador over christmas time and to this day i believe that george w bush got the softwood lumber dispute resolved along with stephen harper when they met for the first time a month after harper had been elected uh, prime minister because he realized what a wonderful friend canada had been and how they'd stepped up early boots on the ground in, in afghanistan they and the Brits and us were doing the heavy fighting over there and he wanted to help his friend, Stephen Harper, who said, softwood lumber is my number one issue. I need to resolve it. And they used the political capital to do it. And three months later, the agreement was signed. But this, that, that's the kind of reputation Canada needs. I say that respectfully, not the kind of, kind of reputation that's written up in the Wall Street Journal.
2: Well, Ambassador Dewar, you're outnumbered on this stage, three Americans to one Canadian. I know you've long said that Canada should be at 2%, but what? Do you, how do you, are we being too harsh, or I should say, are they being too harsh right now?
0: Well, we can handle it. Uh, we play hockey, so we can handle it. <laughs> uh, we uh, certainly, you know, here in Western United States with Western Canadian delegates here, uh, it's important to... An interesting historical fact is the first special forces operation was established by Western America, United States citizens and Canadians uh, that trained in Helena, Montana, to go in uh, behind enemy lines in the Second World War. Seventy uh, percent of their troops were, didn't come back to either Canada or the United States. And we've had a, this is my paid political announcement before I get into the specific question. We've had a history of being shoulder to shoulder, the Second World War, the First World War, the Korean War. Uh, we didn't go into Iraq, but we went into Afghanistan because we did believe that uh, the uh, the Osama bin Laden's attack was aided and abetted by the Taliban in Afghanistan. As uh, David mentioned, we were in uh kandahar one of the most difficult parts of that country i general Petraeus said to me the canadians are not in the club med section of afghanistan and they're in the toughest part right so we've always been shoulder to shoulder we are uh committed to the ukraine mission against russia but i do believe that canada should go to two percent i i'm happy that we have now announced we're going to buy the interoperable aircraft that we talked about about six years ago, the F-35s. I think that's not only important for NATO, uh, but it's also important for NORAD. I hope that leads to more of our contribution on military spending, particularly dealing with the Arctic. We have, of course, the border with Russia across the Arctic Ocean. Uh, I'm hopeful we'll get there. Uh, I'm a firm believer that uh, there's two conditions to get into NATO. One is article five an attack on one is an attack on all and the second condition is two percent we're not there we should be there it's not canada's tradition to to go to the washroom when the the check comes it's our tradition to be there and it's my view that that's we should get tradition. there what's that that's my tradition <laughs> Yeah, that's that that's our joint tradition in this room and i do believe we should get there and i th- think we should get there quickly with some of the aircraft we're going to purchase for defending uh, our continent and also the world. But I do believe that 2% is the condition and 2% should be met.
2: Well, thank you for that. So we've talked about transatlantic a little bit. You mentioned Arctic a little bit. That's two of the three oceans for Canada. Let's talk about the Pacific Ocean if we could Um, and and the Pacific in general. We are the Pacific Northwest Economic Region here after all. And uh, I think it's difficult to talk about the Pacific without acknowledging uh, the role of China in the region and in the world. And so I have a little hypothesis that I'd like to try out on on everyone. See what you think. uh, And and speaking about China and its impact in the world, and then I'd love for you to respond and we'll start with you, Ambassador Dewar. Um, Here's my hypothesis. There is something that Americans tell ourselves that isn't necessarily going to always be true or doesn't have to be true. And there's something that I would argue Canadians tell themselves that also isn't necessarily true, thinking about uh, China in particular. And it is the, the, what the Americans, what we tell ourselves is that we're a superpower and we're always going to be a superpower. And the question I would pose is, is that necessarily true? Particularly when you think about China. Are we always going to be the dominant superpower? Canadians, and you feel free to disagree or, you know, amend, um, Canadians, the myth that Canadians tell themselves, I would argue, respectfully, is we're not a superpower and we're never going to be a superpower. And I'm not sure why that has to be true. When you think about what makes a superpower resources, energy, food, Canada is blessed in all of those. So in the context of superpowers, Ambassador Dewar, what's going on with China? Uh, it's the one thing I think that unites the entire United States Congress is how much we're worried about China. Um, so what's the state of play, both in Canada and the United States vis-a-vis um, the emerging power that is China?
0: It's a complicated question. The I, I certainly believe the Canada and United States—the the term "superpower" is one term, but we—we've won the lottery being born in either one of our countries, uh, with all the natural resources and the you know and the uh, approach to education and training and the other social programs that we have collectively across our borders. Uh, we're very very fortunate to either have moved to the Canada or United States or be born here. Uh, Having said that, I think that we've got to be on the alert with uh, China. Uh, I was very much in support with my colleague ambassadors on Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiations, which I thought would set the rules of trade uh, with other countries in the Pacific, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Mexico, Japan, Singapore, Vietnam. Uh, Unfortunately, that was a good agreement, but never it got so politicized it didn't get ratified. And, uh, you know, uh, by the United States. And they did all the heavy lifting to get the deal Uh, and are not getting the benefits. We also have to watch very carefully.
2: Canada lobbied to get into TPP and that was a big. Yes, we did. And that was a big lift. Canada gets into TPP and the US says, never mind. Interesting.
0: Yeah, it is interesting because as I say, the heavy lifting uh, was done by the United States to begin with. and, And we have the benefit of some of those Pacific trade agreements but what were the one areas we've got to really watch with china is their activity in the economy through state-owned enterprises when we get to critical minerals there's a mine in manitoba and i used to be i consider part of the west western canada by the way because we're we're in the western division of the canadian football league but <laughs> uh and I, I actually had a quarterback from boise state play in Winnipeg. but uh, the uh, the bottom line is state-owned enterprises are moving in on the mining sector uh, in Canada, and they, I think we should have an agreement between Canada and the United States uh, to start with, maybe Mexico. Mexico's got state-owned enterprises from China, very active in their country as well. But we should have an agreement on energy security, energy reliability, energy rates that include an agreement on critical minerals being shared as part of a collective uh, supply chain between our countries. And dare I say, it should not include having a state-owned enterprise own critical minerals, lithium that's useful for Canada and the United States in North America. So I think we've got to up our game uh, when we go to the bilateral meetings on uh, the role of our two countries to ensure we have what we need for a great future for our countries and not sit back and take the path of least resistance.
2: So what's, amen uh it's hard to disagree that the u.s and canada should uh be more forward leaning on critical minerals i've said publicly and argued that the rhetoric is really good uh the action is awfully slow what are the impediments what why isn't canada for example the world leader in the processing of critical minerals it's dirty business it's hard to do but if anybody can do it sustainably uh responsibly with respect to labor indigenous environment it seems to me it should be canada given its great experience in uh, resource sector. What's the impediment?
0: Well, I think we have to have a can do attitude. I think the can do attitude of getting things done is starting with informing people of why it has to get done and have you have to gauge in the fight. It can't be just a battle of one trick ponies for something and somebody against it. It becomes very simplistic. It doesn't have a bigger vision and the public have to be informed completely in, in a very assertive way on the absolute benefits to their citizens and the citizens of this uh, continent, of North America. And if you kind of sit back and are passive about these things and just uh, let it go on between, you know, one set of lawyers, and another set of lawyers. No
2: offense to the lawyers. No
0: lawyers left behind in these fights, I'll tell you. And on the environment and energy and anything else, a lot of law firms here, I better be careful. uh, The, uh, you know, we, we won't get it done. We have to have, We've got to go out, it's like TPP, you've got to go out and sell the benefits. You can't sit back and be passive. And uh, I think with that comes public license to get
1: things done and you have to do both. Scotty, just to underscore something that Gary said, um, if you go out and ask the public generally about the importance of the transition to renewable energy, most people are going to say that's a pretty good thing. Um, And Canada and the United States have some very aggressive targets about those transitions. But if you ask the public, well, do we have the resources that are necessary in order to make that transition? Most of them will say, yeah, sure. I'm sure we do. Um, the, we need to, by a factor of at least four and maybe six, increase our access to critical minerals in order to meet those energy transition targets. And most people don't understand that. And until they understand it, they're, you know, look, these, as you said, it is dirty business Um, and it's in somebody's backyard. Um, And until they understand that this is the only way that we are going to get to where we want to get, I mean, was 106 here yesterday. The only way that we're going to get to where we want to get and where we need to get is if we do a much better job in canada and the united states and in a lot of other places around the world in getting this stuff out of the ground and refining it in a responsible way
2: i was just going to say it's dirty business dirty business, terrible quote early in the morning, if, if you don't do it the right way. And there are countries in the world that aren't as responsible as Canada, the United States are at uh, at doing it. So there is a sustainable way to develop these resources. Tech resources that I work with, I think is in the room. They have a phenomenal, uh, several phenomenal projects in Alaska and in British Columbia and throughout the United States and Canada uh, in this. And they, they know how to do it right. And they have a commitment to be nature positive. So I just wanted a little shout out uh, over to you, Ambassador Wilkins. Yeah,
4: just very briefly. I I think we we being Canada and the US are now beginning to realize that we are in serious competition, whether it be trade or military buildup or critical minerals or whatever the case is uh, with with China. Uh, They're not our friend, they are our serious competitor. And we mentioned critical minerals probably uh, 10 times in the last uh, five minutes. I think it's important to note that our Department of Defense is is critically involved uh, in that, in the development of our strategy uh, because of the, the serious national uh, security issue involved with that. And so I was delighted to see that the uh, Department of Defense has represented this conference and they're in a, on a panel this, uh, this afternoon to talk about this very subject.
2: Thank you. Just real quick.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, you know, China, started getting these minerals from the Congo to take over the battery manufacturing advantages over Canada and the United States. It's not like they're hiding and they're they're hiding in plain sight and we just got to up our game. Up our right. game in this uh, neighborhood.
2: Absolutely. Well, one of the things um, in in the wind up to this question that I said is in in the United States, you know, people don't agree a lot on things politically in Washington, you may have noticed. Um, but but there's general agreement about China and the importance. So I want to I want to stick with politically. I want to stick with politics for a second um, because there might be one or two political people here, elected officials, uh, people that work for elected officials, and it seems like um, somehow all of the political stars are aligning to have uh, all the influence end up in South Carolina. What in the world is going on in South Carolina, Ambassador Wilkins? Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Because it, it, it's if, if you haven't been paying attention lately, wait till you hear this.
4: <laughs> well, greetings from South Carolina. Uh, the uh, the political season is uh, certainly heating up in the U.S. Of course, it, it, we we stay in per- perpetual political season, but. Uh, particularly in some of the early primary states that South Carolina is, the first primary is only six months away, presidential primary. Uh, it used first to be Republican-
2: Iowa and New Hampshire. Yep. That's different now. Yeah. I mean, that's I, new.
4: Am I going to be able to answer this or you won't? Uh, I
2: don't, yeah. <laughs> I was just clarifying in case well, people didn't realize. Here.
4: There we go. We'll do it. I'll take a sentence, you go, and you know, here we go. Uh, the, the first uh, presidential debate, Republican debate is less than a month away. Uh, right now, there are, I think, 12 uh, re- declared Republican candidates for president. Most likely, about six will qualify under some of the criteria set for participation in the debate. Uh, president Trump is saying he'll skip the, the first, uh, maybe the first couple of debates. We'll see if that holds. Uh, but right now, South Carolina truly is, as, as Scotty alluded to, um, one of the hot hotspots uh, for presidential politics in the US. Uh, Just last week, uh, President Trump visited the town of Pickens. Pickens is about 20 miles uh, from my hometown of Greenville. It's population 3,500 people, small little, rural South Carolina town. Uh, 50,000 people showed up uh, for that rally. I never had that many people uh, in a year almost in Pickens. Uh, then uh, a couple of days later, President Biden was in Columbia, South Carolina, our state capital. Uh, add to that, we've got uh, two candidates: uh, our own U.S. Senator Tim Scott uh, and our former governor and uh, U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. Both really viable candidates. They'll be on the on the first debate stage. They've already met the criteria in fundraising and and uh, High enough in the polls, um, but um, you've got you've got as Scotty said three prime early primaries: was mid-January next year, uh, followed a week later by uh, New Hampshire, and then South Carolina is the uh, middle of uh, I think February 24th uh, next year, the first uh, primary in the South, only a week before the Super Tuesday primaries. Uh, so a lot of attention is being paid to South Carolina right now. That's on the Republican side, on the Democrat side, because of President Biden's wishes, uh, South Carolina got moved up to first. It's the first Democrat primary, jumped ahead of New Hampshire, jumped ahead of Iowa, much to their dismay and dislike. Uh, so there'll be a lot of a lot of folks traveling to South Carolina uh, in the next six months. Uh, all this to say, um, Who's going to be the nominee? Who's going to be the next president? Uh, I'll meet you afterwards and tell you that if you want me to, no, I'm just kidding. Um, Nobody knows. I really believe on the Republican side, obviously President Biden will be It's anticipated. Certainly he'll be the nominee on the Democrat side. Uh, President Trump is, uh, is by far the leader right now. I think this thing will boil down fairly quickly to two or three other viable candidates. And that's where the race will be uh, for the early primaries. Um, when you get right down to it and you look at the Electoral College map, <clears throat> uh, Democrats won't be campaigning for president in South Carolina. Uh, my Republican colleagues won't be campaigning in David's state of Illinois because we know where those states are going to vote. Uh, it boils down to about four, four uh, really critical states like Georgia, Nevada, Arizona, um, and states like that, Wisconsin, and then throw in maybe North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Michigan, New Hampshire. Those eight states will decide who's going to be the next president of the United States. But it for political junkies like me, uh, this is, um, you know, this is politics on steroids getting ready to happen.
1: Can, can I just toss one other thing in that that David didn't mention? um one of the real complexities there's a there's a problem or a complexity in the primary side on the Republicans with the number of candidates and you have one candidate who has a a significant base of support and everybody else is dividing up the rest but in a general election there are two huge wild cards uh and those are third-party candidates who will draw in one instance, exclusively from the left and in the other disproportionately from the left, uh, that is no labels and uh, Cornell West. Um, and if those two are on the ballots in a number of of those eight battleground states, and they probably will be, um, that that could definitely make it easier for any Republican candidate, including President Trump, uh, to get elected.
2: Gary Dewar, you're a good handicapper. Who's gonna be the nominee uh, for the Republican Party this time, do you think? Donald Trump. Yeah. And who's your, who, if not Donald Trump, is it gonna be Wilkins' favorite Nikki Haley or somebody else, you think?
0: Uh, number two.
2: If it, if it's not Trump, who's who's your second choice? prediction not choice
0: uh that's a tough uh question uh i i would have thought vice president pence had an open uh, a potential opening to get the to be the contender i mean the whole goal of the republican candidates besides trump is to be the alternative to trump and desantis initially was out front and he's had a, a number of setbacks uh, it's interesting, too, by the way, there's no candidate west of the Mississippi. We should be talking about that, too. There's probably a lot of people here that should be running uh, for get a Western voice. Nominate but, somebody. Uh, so, but uh, there's still time. <laughs> I, I, uh, I think. Uh, Pence, if I'm going to pick a second choice, it'll be Pence. But I don't think he's I, it's just such a strong first option right now. It's just overwhelming.
1: Uh, in terms of the Republican Party, I would, unfortunately, I would say Tim Scott, uh, who's one of your South Carolinians, uh, is the alternative. Pence is having a real problem raising money. He may not be on the debate stage. It, it's unclear at this yeah, point. Just um, uh,
4: Tim Scott and Nick Haley are really are really qualified, and they uh I, I think they're going to be players in this thing. I think. I think what's going to be important is see how the candidates do the first debates, because that usually separates. And my guess is Scott and Haley will both do very, very well in those debates.
1: I I will say one last thing about this. National polls at this stage of the game really mean next to nothing. Um, Don't start looking at national polls until after the first couple of primaries, uh, because they are likely to shift dramatically. Uh, and so, I mean, Biden's going to be the Democratic nominee. But if Trump does not do well in Iowa and or New Hampshire, you may see these polls change a lot.
4: I might add that national polls didn't mean anything six years ago either. The day yeah, that's true. <laughs> the hell out of me.
2: <laughs> well, we're going to come we're going to shift to Canada, U.S., but I can't resist and uh, I have to disclose to all y'all that uh, Ambassador Jacobson shot me down um, a few hours ago uh, when I asked him this in the bar, but I'm gonna try again because I believe in resilience. Um, If it's not Joe Biden, we agree that Joe Biden is the president, he's the incumbent, he's gonna be the nominee, but um, pick a rising star uh, that could be uh, presidential caliber if you had to pick somebody um, either for this cycle or next cycle or whatever.
1: The, excuse me. um not to be or partisan here but I was President Obama's ambassador so you probably can guess which side I'm on um but um I think that Gretchen Whitmer the governor of Michigan is when I talk to my political friends the name that comes up overwhelmingly the most often there are others um and it's not going to be in 24 but in 28 uh or later uh but she's somebody that uh seems like a very good candidate and is very well liked by the democratic establishment
2: thank you for thank you for indulging that uh so now let's shift to canada us specifically if we could there are you you said if we get the big things right ambassador jacobson the irritants uh take care of themselves, and um, Ambassador Wilkins, you mentioned that it, it was Afghanistan, it was Canada's work in Afghanistan that gave it the clout to get a different issue resolved, softwood lumber. Uh, let's talk about some of the perennial issues that are also hot uh, now. And in fact, somebody from the audience has asked us about energy. So I'd like to ask you guys about energy, food, uh, the border, uh, in, in whatever you order you want um, to answer. but. Well, no, in in the order of the audience, let's talk about energy. Is there something in particular, in addition to critical minerals, which we've talked about, uh, that would be important for this constituency um, to think about or focus on uh, going forward? Ambassador Dewar.
0: Well, I've often believed that Canada, the United States uh, should have a, a vision on energy that includes the environment. Uh, I think that uh, we should be, de- you know, when we look back, actually with the states, many Western states, to join with many Western provinces on light vehicle emission standards, starting with California Governor Schwarzenegger and then many other states uh, in this region also joined in on light vehicle emission standards, which actually became the law between Canada and the United States under President Obama and Prime Minister Harper. I think the discussion where both countries are challenged on climate and they're both challenged on energy reliability, energy rates, uh, energy renewables. And I think we should, we always, you know, we've been to these tables before and it's this project getting a yes or no and that project getting yes or no, instead of managing this in a much bigger way. And I'm hopeful that we can have a larger discussion right now some of those discussions are going on at the city level on the state level uh, like they were a few years ago and they're not going on in washington and in ottawa on a bilateral basis they're they're they're, they're really i think we're missing some opportunities there by having the lack of a broader table on uh, both items because to the public they they're they're together as a challenge and an opportunity
1: Scotty <clears throat> we were talking at my table before we got up here about when I was getting ready to come up here and I knew that I had gotten an email about the schedule and I went on to my emails and I did a search for penworm and the first thing that came up was a speech that I gave at this conference in 2010 while I was the ambassador and I read through it and I was struck by one thing which was that many of the issues that confronted us in 2010 continue to c- confront us now and probably will confront us 13 years hence and one of them clearly is these dual issues of energy and climate and the environment um, in, in terms of a response to your question I think there are a couple of things and again these were things that we were talking about 13 years ago one is the infrastructure to get energy and not just pipelines but you know high tension power lines um but the infrastructure that's necessary to move energy within canada within the united states in between our two countries another one and one of us already alluded to this is regulatory cooperation so that there are not dramatically different rules on one side or the of the border or the other so that it's a race to the bottom um uh, another thing that i don't think gets enough attention is and this is particularly for renewables is the ability to trade energy across the border you know if it's sunny in arizona and it's cloudy in manitoba maybe they can uh you know at a particular time move it or it's windy in one place and not windy in another um we just have to make these things more seamless and easier you know the border is is it it, it's better than most borders anywhere else in the world but it's not transparent Um, and we need to do things to make it more transparent. There needs to be a higher level of cooperation In order for both countries To do a better job with respect to this transition
2: well on energy infrastructure I just have to point out you were hosting a a really fabulous canada us uh, summit recently in toronto and you had your friend, Governor Whitmer, and our friend, former uh, Governor Blanchard, also U.S. Ambassador to Canada. So I'm just hoping that by the time she's maybe the presidential nominee, you've talked to her about the importance of infrastructure. So uh, Ambassador do that was a paid political ad for Enbridge, uh, which transports uh, fuel right across Canada into the United States. But cross-border infrastructure, whether it's renewable uh, hydroelectricity, uh, whether it's oil and gas pipelines, whether it's anything else, is awfully important.
1: Believe me, Scotty, Governor Blanchard and I have talked to
2: her. (laughs) Okay, All right. So if if energy is the fuel for the economy, let's talk about fuel for for people, which is food. Um, We saw that Russia today is backing out of a really important agreement that allows Ukrainian food to flow through the Black Sea uh, and feed the world. Canada feeds the world. The United States feeds the world. What's your view on food security currently? You guys, Um, it's not just about peaches from South Carolina and cherries from the state of Washington um, or blueberries. But what's what should this group be thinking about in terms of food security?
0: Well, I think everybody in this room comes from a state or a district that thinks about the, the prosperity of food provides to their local economies and the prosperity, uh, the advantages of a food that's reliable in the world. Of course, uh, I do believe, you know, it's not surprising, again, Russia's using this as a bargaining chip uh, and regrettably so. Uh, There'll be horrendous or huge pressure uh, from the international community, particularly uh, countries in Africa uh, to get access to that food otherwise uh, uh, a population that is already suffering uh, too many cases of starvation is going to go into a much more acute case of greater starvation and, uh, with the lack of food. I th- I'm hoping that they'll resolve it. Uh, they resolved it last time there was this uh, position of Russia a year ago. Uh, I do believe Canada, United States, and other countries that produce a lot of food are going to have to think about how we prevent greater starvation, particularly in Africa, where that food from Ukraine was moving uh, on ships across the Mediterranean, and I uh, we're going to have to uh, find a way to a break the impasse and b uh, be more real, you know, be potentially sell to places we don't don't normally sell as customers uh, to make sure that starvation doesn't exist and become catastrophic in that in that region.
2: Thank you, Ambassador Wilkins.
4: Yeah, I, I agree with what Gary just said. My uh, friend David Beasley, former governor of South Carolina, just finished uh, a five-year, ten-year as head of the UN Food Bank, and uh, the stories he could tell you about the famine going on, the the starvation going on uh, in these underprivileged countries is just horrifying. And it it's a problem that's not getting better; uh, it's getting worse, and uh, we've got to come up with solutions with our friend and ally, Canada. Uh, Scotty, if I may, I want to go back to talk about energy and I can come back around in a minute, but since I didn't get a, I didn't raise my hand quick enough on the energy point. I want to share, uh, some thoughts on, on that, um, with this, the Penmore crowd. I agree with the, uh, as, as Penmore does, that, that we are all in for planning, um, for transition toward a secure, sustainable, clean energy future. I believe that's what I read in one of Matt's uh, brochures uh, earlier, Um, but in in, in my opinion, it's got to be measured uh, and uh, mindful of the economic impact. And this is just my opinion, and I may be in the vast minority um, and may be the outlier uh, on the stage, but I really think the US and particularly Canada is simply going too fast, too soon uh, with green energy uh, without the necessary infrastructure.
2: I guess you're not an outlier. <laughs> well, I've got- At least yeah, not at least the I room. I got,
4: You're not alone. i got one ally out there with me. Uh, uh, seriously, w- w- without the necessary infrastructure um, in place to ensure uh, secure energy um, sources while we make this transition uh, away from fossil fuels. Um, already in the U.S., um, Unsold electric cars are piling up on dealers' lots because the American consumer are concerned about the prices and they're concerned about charging stations, quite frankly. And and in Canada, uh, I read uh, on the federal level, your uh, Minister Minister of of Environment uh, said he just wanted to, he said recently he wanted to impose, I believe he said a net zero electricity mandate on all provinces and by uh, 2050, have all fossil fuels phased out um, in Canada. And in my humble opinion, that would be an absolute prescription for economic disaster. And I hope that doesn't happen. So I've been wanting to say that, Thank you but let me say <laughs> okay
1: scotty if if i could go back to food security so i don't get into a fight with david uh, <laughs> um, right. it, it, i agree with everything everybody was saying about that and, and the, the tragedy of it um, and that the united states and canada and australia and some other places need to produce more but one of the things that i don't think gets enough attention in that regard is there has been a miracle in the agricultural sector over the last generation or so in the amount of food that can be produced in the united states and canada and some other places and one of the things that i think both of our countries have an obligation to do is to transfer some of that know-how some of that technology to some of these places where they can grow food but they don't have the technology to do it in an effective way Um, and not only will that ameliorate the the hunger crisis in some of those places but it is a huge energy saver you don't have to ship the stuff from Saskatchewan to you know South Africa um, and uh, and so one of the one of the things that we need to be doing is we need to be investing more in agricultural technology in some of these places that can grow the food but just don't have the tools to do it
2: I thought you were going to say infrastructure because it's not only related to energy, but it's also related, obviously, to uh, being able to move grain, whether it's or other products, whether it's by rail through ports. Uh, And there's a lot going on uh, in North American infrastructure that is probably the subject of another panel. There's a question here, though, sticking with food for a second. um, Ambassador Dewar, there's a question that the group has asked about phosphate um, and the importance of recognizing it potentially as a critical mineral because it's so important to uh, to growing crops. Do you have any thoughts on that?
0: Well, I think that Canada is a large supplier of that, only not only to North America, but to the world and you know it's proven that the crop uh, production goes way up with proper safe use of nutrients and we've got very successful companies including in Saskatchewan just north of here uh, that are producing excellent products Uh, it's it's also got to be balanced with water management Uh, you know water is also a very very important part of this food uh i can if i can admit to a mistake in my life politically and i've got lots of them i was uh, announcing a uh, uh a new plant expansion to take uh, uh to have expansion of uh, ethanol uh, dramatic expansion of ethanol and i when i made the announcement i thought i was really happy with myself i thought it was great clean fuel etc cetera, etc cetera. and i found out it was nine barrels of water one barrel of ethanol you probably won't see that in the debate in Iowa with everybody outbidding each other for delegates in the first primary in the United States but water you know we've got lots of water treaties you got the Flathead River you got the Columbia River we've got the Great Lakes uh, water management has also got to be part of food uh, security and uh, and water management has also got to be part of of uh, energy i mean right. we're burning food uh, and this is probably not politically correct to say it in this audience, but I have to admit I made a mistake thinking I was a hotshot on uh, clean energy and finding out I was burning water I, I don't want to burn water. Yep. And I don't want to burn food and uh, we, well, we we're smart enough to figure this out, but water is also got to be part of this discussion.
2: Well, that's right, and 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 water is something that 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 Penwar's been talking about for a long time. Everything I learned about Columbia River Treaty, I learned several years ago from uh, from this conference, I think, and have been talking about it since. Um, but let let me tie a few of these things together and and ask you something because um, when you think about what's happening with our climate, when you think about what's happening with water, what's happening with food, um, I, I think you can't separate natural disasters, whether it's flooding and droughts, it has an impact on everything. And the the, the natu- natural disaster that is on people's minds in particular right now is wildfires. So I know there is some programming about that um, for this conference, but Ambassador Dewar, um, you and a certain uh, Governor uh, talked about wildfire um, cooperation, Canada, U.S. Maybe let's talk about natural disasters for a minute before we uh, before we continue.
0: Well, we did uh, uh, Governor Dirk Kempthorne and I announced interoperability program between Canada and the United States with all the equipment we were buying to make sure that we could use it on both sides of the border with the airplanes we were using to to, to deal with of fires with the training we gave our people on either side of the border. I believe the center is still here in Boise, Idaho for the United States. There's still the center in Western Canada, Manitoba. And uh, we, uh, you know, the whole idea is to work together very carefully. Uh, It's kind of interesting because people ask me, what's the difference between being an ambassador and a a premier? I said, well, When you're premier, you are phoning a governor to send water bombers to uh, uh, to the uh, other state. And when you're an ambassador, you're phoning the president, the the White House rather to to commit CF-18s to Libya. But water bombers were shared across the border. Uh, Obviously, we've got to really think about how we could get at fires faster and how we can manage the forests more effectively before fires take place. Uh, we've sent lots of crews to the states, so they're sending lots of crews. Thank you very much to all the crews from your states that are coming up to Canada right now. There's a, I really want to thank you a lot. And uh, and I think that we've got to take a step back and look at what we can do to prevent them in the future. And But if you don't get out of forest fire in the first four or five hours, you have a raging freight train after that. It's so important to get there quickly. and. Uh, I noticed the Canadian military is going to British Columbia today. Uh, we've got to get that. There's a huge fire there that's going to affect air quality right here in Boise if we don't get it down.
2: Thank you. Is there anything else about disasters before I pivot?
0: Well, the, you, we, we've got to work together on uh, lots of macro issues and people talk about energy and I don't disagree with some of the statements about, from David Wilkinson uh, or Ambassador Wilkinson, uh, but we've got to keep working at uh, climate strategies as well, there is something going on out there. We got to we got to do both We We have to do it. We can do both. We can walk and chew gum at the same time.
2: Okay. Yes, we can. Uh, we have a little less than 10 minutes left and there's a question that's come up and I can see the monitor. I, I don't know if you guys can, but it's we haven't pre-gamed this. So this is going to be new, uh, but but it's no, it's nothing um, that you haven't heard or talked about before uh, and I think it's an important question. Um, The question is with the continued retirement of baby boomers, what can be done to replace their skill sets and lack of numbers in the workforce caused by lower birth rates? And I would just add to the excellent question, but I would add um, every business leader that I talk to and every political leader that I talk to is worried about uh, having enough people to do the jobs. If we permit all of the, uh projects that we want to permit we don't have enough engineers we don't have enough of anything Um, so i'd like each of you if you would to um talk about workforce how do you deal with it what is there anything innovative um, that penware should be thinking about that washington can be thinking about because i think it's an excellent question
1: there are limited ways that you can even theoretically deal with this problem People can have more children. That's kind of hard for the government to to influence. Um, Immigration is an important solution to this problem over time. And the use of technology to make every worker that we do have more productive is the other way. Um, I think that we are going to do a real good job in the third way. I mean, I don't know if you guys are going to be talking about A.I., but I haven't been in too many places lately where they aren't, uh, and, and that is likely to increase the productivity, maybe to the point of eliminating some jobs, um, but in a very effective way. And, and my hope is that in the United States, we follow the, the, the model of Canada, which is much more aggressive in terms of its immigration policies. Uh, but, You know, we went through a period with COVID where there weren't enough employees to do anything. That was a temporary problem. But that's the problem that we will have for a long time to come if we don't address this. And and it's probably this combination of technology and immigration that's going to address it.
2: Thank you. You guys want to get in on this?
0: Uh, Yes, I, I think, first of all, in Canada, as provinces have shared jurisdiction with the national government on immigration, this is a good idea for the United States. The states should be able to say, with the federal U.S. government, uh, what they need, where they need it, how they need it, and have a say in on immigration. So this is one of the advantages a premier or a, a legislature has over, I think, some of the shared jurisdiction or lack of it in the United States. So I'm proposing more power to the states here uh, for uh, for this decision-making because they're closer to the ground. Secondly, as part of immigration, one of the things we can learn from Europe, particularly Germany, is that you have to invest in post-secondary education, you have to invest in the knowledge economy, but there's a whole series of jobs that are going to be required In trades, the hard hats, the the technical folks, the the those uh, types of occupations, and I think we've got to invest in our colleges, not just our universities, to get those uh, jobs, the job training at the beginning. You can even have co-op education where you train an aerospace worker uh, for four hours how to fix an airplane, and then for four hours uh, they go to class. You can even have co-op education, but colleges and training uh, uh, for skilled trades are really, really important, and they're not gonna diminish with the improvements in technology. And so we've got to really focus in on it on on both sides of
4: the border, I believe. Uh, Very quickly with uh, Gary and David, Um, immigration obviously is a federal issue. It's a issue that's been very elusive. We've been uh, unable to come up so far with a comprehensive, reasonable, workable immigration uh proposal that passes uh but that's a federal issue but but the job uh training the workforce uh that is a state issue i think you're much better equipped to have that than the federal government and the folks in washington i know in south carolina i'm very proud of our uh technical problems and uh, our, our tech school we're just uh Landed Scout Motors. Uh, I forget the figure, but a huge amount of investment by them, and our state committed well over a half billion dollars uh, for, our, for our tech schools there for the necessary. And so, I think states, I think provinces can figure out the right to their state workforce.
2: Well, and 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 just building on on those observations, uh, immigration is important and training is important. But one thing that Penworth, it occurs to me. Could could help advocate is different jurisdictions need to recognize the credentialing um, of the skills that somebody gets. So if you uh, manage to immigrate, you land in British Columbia, and then you get a job in Manitoba, and your 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 skill set isn't recognized, you can't you can't take the job. So so that is something that I think uh, subnational governments uh, I know could do could do a better job of both in the U.S. and Canada. Gary Doer.
0: Just just on that, the interesting part of, we did get an agreement on skilled trades having, uh, including with Quebec, which was more difficult in Canada, skilled trades having uh, uh, mobility across the country with their credentials being recognized. The, actually the most difficult part was professional organizations, accountants. Nurses. Doctors, nurses. All of it. You know, so it's, and it was, the blockage was actually in the professional associations. The unions representing say nurses wanted to have more uh, mobility and mobility rights from state to state and province to province. But the associations uh, were blocking it. So this is, it's interesting. The the hard hats have uh, mobility in Canada. Uh, folks that are, you know, I've got two brothers that are accountants, but you know, they'd fight each other about which accountant is better than the other uh debits and credits that's that's what I'm, a
2: boring fight so
0: but it's it is a it is interesting but there's uh but that's what that's got to happen mobility has got to happen as part yeah good point scotty uh
1: scotty if i if i could uh add to that and make it an ad for penmore um you know i always said that the closer i got to washington the higher my blood pressure was and the closer I got to the White House, it went to an exponential level. Um, And the issues that you all are dealing with here are not inherently political issues, at least in the United States, which I'm more familiar with. Um, And and it's groups like PENWR that have to deal with the issues of real people and making real people's lives a little bit better um which which are a way of maybe breaking through some of this deadlock uh that we certainly have in the united states i've always believed that the united states is a leading indicator for many things in canada some of them good some of them not so good one of the not so goods is our politics and it's clearly shading in that direction in canada but it is organizations like yours that are focused on the real issues of real people uh, who can maybe break through that. And and so I really compliment you on that.
2: Thank you so much for that. We have uh, two minutes left and I'll give it to our remaining two ambassadors if you've got some closing comments about how much you love Penn how great their work is um, uh, or anything else on Canada, US Ambassador Wilkins. Sure. Uh,
4: my first Penoir conference was when I was U S ambassador was back, way back in 2005. I think I've been to I believe this is my 15th, uh, conference I've attended. I've only missed two or three, uh, over the years, uh, last year, I got stuck in Chicago on the way to Calgary for the conference. And I look forward to seeing all of you in, uh, British Columbia next year for our conference, uh, but, um, I sort of feel like I'm one of y'all. I mean, I was in the state legislature 25 years. Uh, I think the action is in the state level, the provincial level, just what David just said. Uh, you, the, the, you know, I just think you lose touch sometimes when you go to Washington or go to Ottawa. And I know I'm using it all the time, but you guys get to see the people you've. You uh, represent at the, the laundry or at the gas station or whatever, and and uh, I just think that makes you closer to the people, and I think that makes you do a, a better job, everybody. Thank,
2: thank you. you, thank you. And the last last word to put the puck in the net is the Honorable Gary Doer.
4: <laughs> try to
0: put the puck, I just go up and down my wing, trying to put the puck in the net. Uh, the uh, I just want to say for all the uh, state representatives and and corporate representatives here today. The two organizations that I have found to be most effective as can-do organizations to get things done across our border is the Canadian-American Business Advisory Council, led by Scotty Greenwood and Penoir with Matt and his team, and all of you. And I, I just really—it's a can-do organization. And uh, if I had a problem, you know, I would talk to Scotty and uh, and and get and get a solution. Uh, so we need more can-do organizations, but I'm glad the two can-do organizations across our border are in strong leadership at this meeting here today. and. Uh, Thank Merci you. beaucoup.
2: Merci à vous. Thank all of you. And if you um, if you want to relive the glory days of this spectacular conversation, uh, here's my shameless plug. I think we're going to try to repurpose this content onto everybody's favorite Canada US podcast, which is called Canusa Street. C A N U S A Street. So if you haven't downloaded it, please do. If you want to listen to this again, and if you want to come on my podcast. Um, Please do that. I think Mike Cuff has been on the podcast. If you haven't been on the podcast, Denny Heck has been on our podcast, but please join us. And most importantly, please join me in welcoming these three distinguished, wonderful leaders, David Wilkins, Gary Dewar, David Jacobson. Thank you very much. What did Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King and President Woodrow Wilson have in common? Yes, they both led their countries during wartime, but they were also the only leaders of their countries to hold a PhD. At the Wilson Center's Canada Institute, we follow these academic civil servants to bring the public the best nonpartisan research and analysis. We're the only think tank in DC focused on this vital relationship. So, in addition to the great repartee you get to hear on Canusa Street, head over to wilsoncenter.org to check out the Canada Institute's work and events. All right. Well, that was that, Chris. It's almost like you were in the room with us. What did you think?
3: I thought it was a fascinating discussion. So many good points. Um, I, on the one hand, the discussion of defense, um, energy and mining. There's so much that we're doing in this era of great Power rivalry, if uh, that some are calling it, where Canada and the U.S. are on the, some, the same side, but there's just so much that we have to do in order to take advantage of, I guess, our natural uh, advantages. It's not as easy as just saying, "Hey, we're allies. Critical minerals are going to be right there," or, or that we can um, we can defend ourselves with the the latest equipment.
2: One of the things that, that's right, one of the things that struck me um, in the room, Chris, and I don't know if it comes across uh, as much in, in the audio, but there was a moment we were talking about carbon transition, and Ambassador Wilkins said something like, you know, I think we're moving too fast, and that got applause. And so when you think about who's in the room at a Penn War conference, it's state legislators and policymakers uh, and provincial legislators uh, from many different p- political parties. Um, and so, you know, one side of the room kind of held its breath and the other side of the room gave him applause. So that was the one moment that I thought was interesting in from a just audience reaction point of view, because everybody doesn't agree on... Um, the pace needed for uh, some of this technological change. I I found that interesting.
3: I find it fascinating, too. And and it's a question in economics that we often have. We focus on the goal, but not on the transition. And the transition, now we have a U.S.-Canada Energy Transition Task Force that's looking very much at how do we get there, because... How you get there can distribute costs very differently, depending on what your plan is. And I think what David Wilkins has pointed out is that for some states and for some Canadians and Americans, if we move fast, they pay more up front. Uh, plus, of course, we're paying taxes for for the stimulus that we're putting in, the incentives we're putting in to get there. And, and maybe a, a different pace would allow people an easier time to adjust. I, I, I don't think it's a question of do we go... To net zero or not? I think that's that's broadly the consensus. But that question of how we get there, I thought that was fascinating, and and the division you you pointed out, you could get a sense of that, I think, from the from the discussion. But uh, had to be in the room, I think, to get the full feel of it. But I don't think that's out of line with where a lot of people are these days, still trying to get there, but but worried about you know at what cost and and to whom.
2: Well, that's exactly right, Chris, and it reminds me of. A previous podcast recently, if our listeners want to look at it, that you and I had with John Stackhouse, who is uh, with RBC. He's in their thought leadership group. And, you know, they've done a lot of reporting and analysis on climate change, investment in climate technologies and all of that. And he had some interesting things to say about the pace of carbon transition as well. So I, I just want to encourage our listeners, if you haven't listened to that one, go back in in the vault and get it because it's because it was a good discussion. To but we missed you in Boise. Uh Chris, I look forward to seeing you at other conferences, and we'll bring we'll bring our favorite content to Canusa Street. How about that?
3: I think it's the way to go. Canusa Street on the road, even if it's a, a solo trip.
2: <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, we'll <laughs> see you next time.
3: All right, thanks, Scotty.
2: This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council
1: and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, Help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple podcasts or Spotify.